0: This is the good news of Jesus to a people that cannot produce revival in themselves. A thirsty people. A people longing for satisfaction that only can be found in God himself. And he calls us to prepare ourselves for it in Psalm chapter 63, verses 1 through 11. A Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah... O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And so I will bless you as long as I live But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be apportioned for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. And so, Father in heaven, we ask you this morning to give the blessing of the power of your Holy Spirit... To the reading, the study, the preaching of your holy word, that you might draw us more and more unto yourself, that you might create in us a fresh, an awakening, an awakening for the love of you, the love of your Son and your Spirit, that you would do it as you renew us in the truths of the gospel. We ask you to do these things in Jesus' name and by the Spirit, amen. You can be seated. The subtitle of the book is The Modern Prometheus, named after the famous Greek god of mythology who gave birth to mankind. But authoress Mary Shelley, she decided to take Prometheus's ancient story and recast it in an era of early 19th century medical science. Her work is better known as Frankenstein. Mary Shelley, she addresses a number of themes in her book, but perhaps the most obvious is this one. While there's much to be celebrated in modern medical science and its growing power, what happens when we overestimate its power and think that we can do things with it that we really can't do or we really shouldn't do? The main character is Dr. Victor Frankenstein, And from an early age, Dr. Frankenstein, even when he was a boy, he becomes obsessed with trying to simulate natural wonders. He becomes fascinated with using technology to not just imitate natural processes, but to take over the role of those processes. Frankenstein wants to be able to reduce that which has appeared mysterious and miraculous in the past, such as the creation of human life, And he wants to be able to reduce it down to a scientific process, a matter of adding the right recipe of chemicals and electricity, pushing the right buttons and pulling the right levers on his machine to suck the mystery out of the miracle of human life and make it predictable, controllable. And, of course, what he creates in the process is the great monster, a a homicidal creature, a killing monster who murders everyone that Dr. Frankenstein knows. And so Frankenstein spends the rest of the novel trying to track down this monster to destroy it. And the justified cynicism and doubt that many of us carry towards revival in our culture is based on what millions of Protestant evangelicals tried to do with revival only 20 years after Mary Shelley wrote this book. Mary Shelley wrote her book in 1818. And in the 1830s and 40s in our country, and what was called the Second Great Awakening, revival had become perfected. It had become repeatable and predictable and controllable. A predictable, controlled process, at least in the minds of traveling evangelists and preachers and camp meeting leaders. They believed that through the right use of means, they could create revival in their audiences. Probably the most famous camp leader and theologian of this movement was a man by the name of probably somebody we've heard a lot of before. Charles Finney is his name. And he gave lectures, and he would write books on the topic of revival, and he would go around to give lectures on revival as though he were a financial advisor offering strategies on how to manage your portfolio. Because for Finney, revival was a science. He once wrote, A revival is not a miracle, nor depending on a miracle in any sense. It is purely a philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means, as much so as any other effect produced by the application of means. So you hear what Finney's saying there. Finney is saying that revival it's it's not a supernatural thing, it's not a miracle. For Finney and thousands of other Christian leaders in the Second Great Awakening, revival was something that you could bottle and sell and reproduce wherever you wanted it to happen. Because for them, revival basically came down to emotionally manipulating people and to making a decision, a commitment for Jesus. And so for Finney, spiritual awakening, it's, it's not a supernatural work Initiated and brought about by God's Spirit. No, it's not that at all. In fact, it's just a matter of applying the right methods, the right strategies in the right environment. If you got the right amount of people to walk many miles into the woods, into nature, to a large campground, and you got them away from their normal lives and cares, and then you put a really dynamic, eloquent preacher, you gave beautiful, emotionally stirring messages. And then you ended the service with music that was designed to heighten these emotions that had already been stirred up so that people just felt like they had to act. They had to weep and they had to cry and they had to come forward and they had to commit themselves or recommit themselves or recommit themselves to Jesus or whatever moral cause was on sale that night. If you could do that, then you could say that you had successfully created a bona fide revival. The proof was in the pudding. It was in the visible response of people if you just used the right me. And of course the problem with this, were many, many, many fold actually, but one of the problems with this is that many people who thought they had experienced true revival had experienced nothing in fact but a wave of emotional experiences. Their faith didn't deepen. Their beliefs about God were not really sharpened. Their lives didn't change. Their affections didn't change. And so they began rejecting, they became disillusioned, and they began rejecting what they thought was Christianity, what they were sold as revival, when it actually wasn't revival or Christianity at all. And if you don't think that the Second Great Awakening has dramatically affected the way That American evangelicals continue to worship and approach church and their own spiritual lives. Think again. The Second Great Awakening was massive. Its impact is still being felt in the way that we do political rallies in our day, the way we have open air concerts in our day. It has impacted so much of what public life and discourse looks like in our country, even beyond the religious sphere. It would be worth a School of Life and Doctrine series just to explore it some more at some point. And while God certainly did real works of grace in people's lives, even in the midst of a lot of the abuses, that whole movement created a massive revivalistic culture in evangelical Christianity that should make us think of Mary Shelley's book. What happens when we try to reduce God's supernatural work of renewal into something that we can manufacture, something that we can control? Well, it doesn't end up in life. It ends up in a pseudo-life. A pretend form of spiritual renewal that ends up being deceptive and destructive. And Psalm 63 is calling us away from that approach to gospel renewal. It is telling us, along with Jesus' letter to the church at Sardis last week, that revival, that spiritual awakening can only be initiated by God, performed by God in the heart, and completed by God. And all we have to do to see this point is to ask ourselves, what's going on in Psalm 63? What's the context? Well, clearly, David is experiencing remarkable spiritual awakening here, isn't he? I mean, the joy is just oozing out of his pores as he's considering... God's presence and goodness to him. But what's going on in his life right now? Well, it's certain that David is not experiencing this spiritual awakening in his soul as the result of manufacturing an emotional experience. He is not in the wilderness of Judah to experience a camp meeting. David is not riding an emotional high at all. In fact, David is leaving his capital city, his throne, with his tail between his legs right now. He has just experienced a massive personal defeat in his life. He is mourning because his son, Absalom, has just seized the throne from him and is staging a secret successful coup. He's just successfully brought it about. And so David's kingdom is in full rebellion against him. And that rebellion is being led by his own son. And to top it all off, All of this has happened just as God said that it would. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, God told David these types of things were going to happen to him as a result of David's sin, David's covenant unfaithfulness. He was tasting judgment and discipline from the Lord for his own sin. His sin with Bathsheba when he stole the woman Bathsheba from her husband Uriah and then had Uriah murdered to cover it up. And God told him he would experience all of this discipline. That his own children would be divided against each other, would lead rebellions. And David's experiencing these things. But he's also also experiencing incredible spiritual awakening and revival in his soul in the midst of it. So let's take a closer look. Let's take a closer look at this personal renewal that David experiences here that leaves his soul satisfied. Verse 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, as I just said, David, he's going out into the desert, literally into the Judean wilderness to flee his son's soldiers. But David's surroundings, they're a sharp reminder to him of not just the neediness of his circumstances, but they're a reminder to him of the thirstiness of his soul. And so this helps us see this point, that although it might seem counterintuitive to us, the first step God often takes us down when bringing renewal to our hearts is to show us how thirsty we really are. Remember last week that I said how we all continually struggle with the problem of spiritual forgetting. Not forgetting information about God, not forgetting information about the good news of Jesus, but forgetting what it feels like to be desperate And then what it feels like to find God meeting us in our desperation with the grace of Jesus. And our spiritual forgetting brings apathy, brings numbness in our walks with God. And so here in verse 1, God has used David's circumstances to show him how thirsty and unsatisfied he is. Apart from his relationship with God. So if gospel renewal takes place as God brings a fresh awareness and experience of his truths, gospel truths, then we have to be prepared for something if we ask God to bring us revival. We must be prepared for him to take us through experiences that show us how thirsty we really are. On the inside. But we don't like to feel thirsty. We don't like to feel thirsty. We don't like to feel inadequate. We don't like to feel needy and helpless. And so what do we do? We hide our thirst. We mask it. We numb it. We medicate it. We ignore it. When I was in high school, me and a couple of my buddies, we used to get together at House. One of my friends. His house. He had. He kind of lived out in the country. Had a bunch of land around his house. A bunch of trees and woods. It was the perfect place for paintball. And so we would get together and we would put on thick military issued clothes. We had. We had official military issued battle dress uniforms. They're called BDUs, right? The thick camo pants that go all the way down, you stuff them inside our leather boots that we would strap up to here. We'd have these thick shirts that we would put on, and then we would cover ourselves with a mask and something going down to cover our neck from being sunburnt. And we would load up our paintball guns, and we'd go out for an afternoon of fun in the woods nearby. We were dressed for combat. Our, 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 our uniforms were perfect for staving off the, the hit of a high-speed paintball. Perfect for blending in to the trees. The only problem was, it was Oklahoma City, and it's August. <laughs> and I think that particular day that I'm thinking of, it's over 100 degrees, as it usually is in August in Oklahoma. And so we're playing, I'm ducking behind trees, I'm hitting the deck, paintballs are flying over me, I'm popping up, I'm taking out my friends, they're taking me out. We're doing this for a couple hours. And I'm distracted. I'm distracted from my need to drink water. I'm distracted from my thirst. I'm medicated with the fun that I'm having the thrill of the hunt and I'm very, very, very thirsty but I have no idea that I'm thirsty at all until my vision starts to narrow until my legs aren't quite working like they should I start to realize I probably need to call it quits and go back to the house and get some water and I can't do it I fall down I can't get back up. I can't pick myself back up. My friends run over to me. They're making sure I'm okay. I start to tell them how thirsty I am. I'm pulling off my shirt. I'm pulling off my helmet, my mask. My friends, one of them, they, they get underneath both of my arms. They help me walk. They practically drag me to the house and stick a hose in my mouth. They probably saved my life that afternoon. Because I had masked my thirst. I wasn't paying attention to it. And this is what we do in the midst of our deep thirst. We try to hide it and ignore it. And this is what all the idols that we create in our lives are really about. In other words, our spiritual apathy and boredom that we experience in our lives, they're often just the byproduct of all the ways that we seek to distract ourselves from our thirst. Let me, say it another, let me say that again. Our spiritual apathy and boredom that a lot of us experience on a regular basis, oftentimes they're just the byproduct of all the ways that we seek to distract ourselves to ignore our thirst. It's like the kid who keeps slurping down fountain soda at his track meet instead of water. The soda might hide his real thirst for a while, but after enough exertion and enough difficult races in the afternoon, eventually his stomach and the rest of his body, they're just not going to hold up. He's going to need real water to quench real thirst that only real water can quench. So one of the questions that Gospel Renewal asks of this is this. When was the last time you felt thirsty for God? If you haven't noticed or felt your thirst for a while, what ways do you use to often hide your thirst, to distract yourself from how thirsty you are? What are the distractions and where are they located in your life? If you're feeling spiritually numb, what anesthesia have you been taking lately? Because God knows that the answer to apathy, to numbness caused by our attempts to mask the thirst, he knows the answer to that is to feel again. And God, in his grace, he brings all kinds of things into our lives that we might feel our thirst. Oftentimes, he lets us feel the pain of sickness The pain of our own sin and addictions. The pain of losing others to death. The pain of difficult relationships with others. The pain of financial loss or job loss. The pain of losing our sense of identity and being successful at something. All of these sufferings and more. So that we will feel again. That we will be shocked out of numbness and apathy with a renewed longing for Jesus. The man laying in a hospital bed unable to feel his legs. He would much prefer to feel pain in his feet if he knew that it would mean future healing. And being able to use his legs again. As we heard Tyler read earlier, this is what's going on with Jesus and the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Jesus, he's not being mean to her. He's not being mean to her when he says, hey, let's keep talking about this, go call your husband. Well, actually, I don't have a husband. You've said truly you have no husband. The man you're living with... Is not your husband. You've had five husbands before him. The man you're living with is not your husband either. This you've truly said. He's trying to belittle her, make her feel bad. No, not at all. He's trying to help her see you're thirsty. And you've been masking that thirst for years. You've been hopping from one relationship to the next. Because I'll tell you what, we started this conversation around a well, and I still think that you think that this is about physical water. It's not. This conversation's not about physical water. It's about your soul. And you've been hiding and masking that thirst for a long time. And before you're going to come to me so that I can give you living water, you need to see the thirst you have deep down truly, and you need to begin rejecting the counterfeits Rejecting the counterfeits that you run to to feed your spiritual thirst so that she can come to the point where she goes, Yes, I'm thirsty. I am. I'm needy. I tell all the women, I tell all the people I meet at the, at the, at the well every day that, that, that I'm okay when they ask, but I'm not. I'm not doing okay. I'm not doing all right. He would calls on her to reject her counterfeits so that she will come to him where he promises to give her living water which would become an unending spring welling up to eternal life as he says. He's promising her the Holy Spirit which he knows will satisfy her unlike anything else that she's been trying. So God reveals our thirst to us he calls us to sit in that thirst for a while, to feel it, sometimes for a long while. And he always knows how long we need to sit in it, and it's always longer than we want. But in the meantime, he calls us to reject the counterfeits, the sodas, the numbing medicines, the idols that we run to for escape. And then, like we saw last week... He calls us to spiritual remembering. He calls us to believe. To believe that Christ is for us. And to believe that Christ is with us. And we get a picture of this in verses 2 through 4. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. What's David doing? He's spiritually remembering. He's meditating and recalling a vivid time of worship, of communion with God. He's meditating on God's power and grace towards him. And it's giving David a sense of God's nearness, God's presence with him. And this is giving David a great measure of joy. He's reenacting gospel truths with his heart and with his soul and with his mind and with his body. And God is using these things to bring about an awakening in him. Even in the midst of a desert experience going on in his life. And how much more, how much more do we have to work with in our spiritual remembering than David did? David lived on the other side of Christ's coming about a thousand years before Jesus was going to be on the scene when so much of what Christ would do and how he would do it and the far-reaching blessings of all that he would do was still seen in pictures and shadows, seen as through a fog for saints like David. But if David could still say, because your steadfast love is better than life. If he could still say, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Back then, how much more? How much more can we who have been given the fullness of the spirit. Who have Jesus' promises to never leave us nor forsake us. How much more can we meditate on these truths? And find David's joy. David rehearsed and meditated upon God being for him and God being with him. And through the incarnation of God the Son, who's become human for us, we now know on levels that David couldn't see, we see on levels that he couldn't even, how much more we can meditate upon. So many more reasons to say that Christ is for for me, and Christ is with me. But the psalm, it, it does more than just show us David experiencing spiritual awakening in the midst of his thirst. It also shows us some things that David did to prepare for this gospel renewal. Because even though you and I, we cannot initiate revival, even though we can't manufacture it, nor should we seek to imitate it or control it, God does clearly call all of us to prepare for it, to yearn for it. Look again at verse 1. David says, earnestly I seek you. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner is his name. He says that the word behind earnestly is also related to the word dawn or early morning. And so the whole picture here suggests great eagerness... This phrase asks us the question, what can you not wait to pursue as soon as you get out of bed? We even use similar expressions in our communication with each other. Hey, hey, don't worry. I'll start working on that first thing tomorrow. Tomorrow, we're climbing in the car. We're all going to get in the car. We're going to start off for our vacation first thing. And so eagerness... Desire, thirst, and then getting to it soon, they naturally fit together. Look down at verse 8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And the word for clings is the same as cleaves when speaking of marital devotion between husband and wife in Genesis chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. Genesis 2. The Hebrew means to pursue, to follow, to cling after. Actually, I think the old King James Version probably still translates it best with my soul followeth hard after you. It is a persistent pursuit. And the question is, how do we prepare ourselves for awakening? What does it look like to follow hard after God. Well, as I said last week, we certainly begin with prayer. If God alone can cause us to be reacquainted, not just in our minds, but in our hearts, with the truths of our sin and need and the truths of God's grace and love, then we have to always begin with prayer. This entire psalm is a prayer. And it's a great one for us to pray back to God in the midst of our thirst that he might hear us and awaken in us a satisfaction with himself. But we also see David doing some other things here too. He engages in meditation, unfocused contemplation. He's rehearsing God's past promises, God's past acts of mercy, times when God showed up for David in tangible ways. He's doing this in his mind and in his soul in verses 2 and 6. He's doing this with his body, with his mouth and voice in singing in verses 3 and 5 and 7. He's doing it with his arms and his hands in verses 4. David is rehearsing. He's recasting God's grace with his imagination, with worship songs, with his body posture, with his whole self. Because once again, gospel renewal, it begins in the heart, but it isn't content until it has the whole person. It's not an out of body experience. Unlike so many rituals and teachings that come out of Eastern religions like Buddhism, it's, it's not an effort to divorce one's soul, one's inner experiences from one's body. Rather, it is God bringing to the heart a fresh taste of communion with himself through the gospel. So that the whole person, body and soul, is transformed. Moving down a different direction in worship and service. Revivalistic culture that came out of the Second Great Awakening... It wanted to locate the center of spiritual experience and renewal in the, the emotions. Which was a big mistake. But we make an equal mistake when we try to locate it in just the brain. Making revival the same thing as reading a theology textbook. Neither can it be reduced to simply behavior changes with the body acts of service, social justice, mercy ministry. Instead, as I said last week, awakening, it starts in the heart where the person's thinking and desires and goals and wants and purposes and will are located. It starts there. The Holy Spirit engages, though, the whole person with the truths of the gospel because we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, strength all of us it's the first and greatest commandment it's the fulfillment of the whole law and so God in bringing revival to you and me is bringing us into holistic law keeping out of delight for him and all of this takes time and it takes effort it takes dedicated time and effort And straining and work to pursue. It means saying no to something else. A good something else every time. A worthy something else every time. So that we can engage in prayer, in meditation, in worship, in rehearsing God's promises and actions made known to us in the scriptures. David speaks of doing it in the morning in verse 1. He speaks of doing it in the watches of the night in verse 6. And this is where some of us, frankly, get weirded out. This is where some of us get tripped up and we get very concerned because this starts to sound like earning or meriting God's grace, His favor when work is involved. We start to think that if we do something that requires work or if we do something out of duty... We have ruined grace. That we must do something out of sheer delight or else it's moralism and legalism. But that's not true. That's not true. The truth is, we can actually, we can turn anything. You can turn anything into moralism and legalism. You can even turn good, sound doctrine about God's free grace given to us in Jesus that can be used by our twisted hearts to serve moralism and legalism. But that's not good doctrine's fault. That's the fault of our hearts. So we don't get rid of good doctrine just because we can turn it into something moralistic. Do we? Because the problem's in our heart. Our heart can take anything and morph it and mutate it into something that we think merits God's favor, merits his kindness and grace and mercy to us. And so pursuing fellowship and intimacy with God out of duty doesn't have to be the result of legalism, nor does it have to lead to legalism. Sometimes we do something today out of duty because we know deep down that tomorrow it will produce further delight. And this is completely compatible with grace, with gospel motivations. On a regular basis, we make Aubrey eat food that we put on her plate, even when it's not her favorite food. Do it on a regular basis. Because later, someday, many of these foods, which we know are very good for her, they're going to become a delight for her to eat. Some of these foods she doesn't like that much right now she'll actually start enjoying them later. She might even start craving them later. And we know that. A lot of us get up early to exercise, to work out, or we take some time out of our schedule someday to work out, to make good on our gym membership. But we're not doing it out of a sense of obligation. Hopefully, we're not doing it to like earn favor with our spouse or our significant other. Hopefully, that's not why we're doing it, to earn something from someone. Let's be honest, most of the time, not a lot of us are doing it out of delight either. We're not waking up at the crack of dawn super excited out of sheer delight to go run a few miles, to go to the gym. We typically, especially when we're beginning a workout routine, we typically typically begin by doing it because we know that it's good for us. We take it by faith that it is good for us. And then over time it proves to be so. And down the road, sometimes for a lot of us, those of us who've been working out for a long time, we kind of start to miss it. If we go too many days, we've missed a workout. We actually start to see that we've begun to enjoy it. And if this is true with things of lesser value, like learning to eat more broadly or learning to exercise, how much more will the enjoyment increase when we consider what it means to intimately fellowship with our Father, through Christ. Because the same grace that sometimes gives us delight in pursuing God through prayer and meditation on his gospel, that's also the same grace that gives us strength to pursue him when we don't feel like it. It's the same grace. It's all done from his grace, not from our strength, and not for the purpose of gaining merit. I want to end with this. Throughout this psalm, David desires God himself. He desires God himself. And he's satisfied with God himself. David, he's, he's not just after one more of God's blessings. He isn't after just another military victory, another child, more wisdom for a difficult decision. All of which are perfectly praiseworthy things to desire and ask God for. But David's going beyond these things here. He isn't after the gifts. He's after the giver. And in fact, he recognizes that the greatest gift is the giver himself. That no one else, that no other thing could satisfy his soul like a deeper experience of relating to God himself. And this is what gospel renewal is. The gospel itself really isn't the goal. The gospel is the means. Renewal in the good news of Jesus brings us to the goal, which is a fresh encounter with God himself. And so we ask God, through Christ, because of the work of Christ, to give it to us. Father, we thank you for your word We thank you, Father, that 3,000 years ago you led David into a harsh, difficult desert experience in his life, literally, but also inwardly in his soul too. And you did it so that you could also give him great awakening as to your mercy and your grace and your love and kindness for him, that he would taste you afresh anew. And that by your spirit, you would inspire him to write this psalm for us. We thank you for that. Lord, we pray this week, this summer, you would draw us nearer to your son. We pray this week, this summer, you would be building into our lives the pursuit of you, preparation for you to bring awakening to us. We know that you do it in your time and ways. And you do it in different ways in all of our lives. It doesn't, it's not a one-size-fits-all sort of thing. But you do it, ultimately. So help us become a people that desire that and want to know you through your gospel afresh and new. Do this in us, we pray, this summer. Do it for us even this morning and this week. In Jesus' name and by the Spirit. Amen.